so we're dealing with these four stories, and we see in story number one, Jesus calms the storm, right? And, and he, uh, he takes this chaos, this raging, stormy seas, and, and he brings it uh, to where it needs to be. And then we see Jesus cast out demons. And all of this is, is just displaying the power of God. And, and it's going to continue with these last two stories. And these last two stories are what we're covering this morning. And in one of these, Jesus heals um, an incurable disease. And the last one we're going to see is that Jesus raises the dead. All of these are just so powerful in displaying who Jesus is. Now, here we come down and I say, okay, our last two, two stories are combined together. So what that usually means in Mark is, there's a sandwich, right? So the way the sandwich works in Mark, we've already seen this, you're going to see it again because this is the way he writes, is he'll begin story one and story one will be interrupted by a second story. Then after that second story, they'll return to story one. And it's, it's, to, it's used in a way by Mark in order to, to show how these two stories are meant to be put together and, and they show us this powerful theme, okay? So it, it's really brilliant in what Mark does. Now we see some similarities that we don't always see. In fact, a lot of times these stories, they seem to have absolutely nothing to do with one another. And, and in this one you could say there's a lot of things that are not similar, but in this one we do find there's both of them are females that are healed. We know that both are, are called daughter by Jesus. Twelve becomes uh, a significant number, which I didn't put up there. Jesus is rebuked in both stories. And Jesus is in contact with uncleanliness in both of these stories. Uh, and like I said, the one that I didn't put up there, I don't know why, is, is the one about um, is the number twelve. Both, you'll see that as we go through this thing. So I'm just going to open up with verse 23. I mean 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. All right, so once again, Jesus is going to cross the Sea of Galilee. Um, remember, he had been over here in Gergesa, uh, and now he's going to be heading back where? Mark doesn't tell us. He just says somewhere beside the sea. And, and, and we see this often um, that Jesus' ministry, in these first six chapters, it's like 15 times. There's 15 references that Jesus is doing this ministry, and it's especially on the western side uh, of the Sea of Galilee. So this is where a lot of this, this is happening. Uh, what kind of reception does Jesus receive when he gets there? This great crowd. And, and they're embracing him, right? A little different from where he left. If you remember last week, we talked about Decapolis. They want Jesus to leave. So here, Jesus gets here, and suddenly, I mean, they are excited um, for, for Jesus to be there. All right, somebody read for us verses 22 through 24. 22 through 24. So we're introduced to the first story, which is a dying child. 
And, and uh, we see what we have seen in all four of these stories. We said that there's these themes that, that are found in all four. We see desperation and we see death right here. Right in the very outset, we see these major themes that we found. And who comes out to Jesus? Yeah, Jairus. Um, which is interesting because normally Mark doesn't give names outside of the disciples. You find very few outside of the disciples of Jesus, the twelve, in which Jesus gives some names. And here Jairus is, is mentioned. It also mentions that he does what? What is his occupation? Yeah, he is a ruler of the synagogue. We've talked about the synagogue before. Um, and we have, you know, this was a place that's very familiar to what we do here. You know, there's the reading of scripture, there's preaching, there's prayers, and this type of thing. Now, the ruler of the synagogue, or president, if you want to call it that, of the synagogue, was, was not an a educated scribe. This is not someone who was a rabbi. He's not the one who did the teaching. He really is in charge of the facilities, its upkeep, its security. He's in charge of, you know, kind of that order of worship, if you will, um, he made sure that they had the scrolls that they needed that was going to be read that morning. Who was going to be reading the scrolls on the Sabbath? Who's going to be doing the prayers? What rabbi is going to be coming in and making sure everybody's checked out? He's, 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 uh, he's a little more, he has a little more detail to him than what Adam Trezan does on Sunday mornings. If you don't know, Adam goes around and makes sure everybody is in the right place. But, it, you know... Uh, and no, we're not calling you the head of the, uh, of the auditorium, uh, Adam, sorry. But, uh, but you kind of get the idea of who this guy is, all right? So what does Jairus, why has he come to Jesus? How does he come to Jesus? His child is sick, and how does he approach Jesus? Yeah, he just, he falls down before Jesus. Uh, and he says, my little girl... Anybody that's been a parent, um, is a parent, this just kills you. He says, my little girl is at the point of death. She is at death's door. In other words, she is sinking fast. So what does Jesus do? Yeah, he immediately leaves. He goes with them. And this is pretty awesome. He's leaving the crowd to go with the one. Pretty awesome stuff. All right, let's keep going. Somebody read for us verses 25 through 29. Wow. Uh, also, you notice the word immediately there. We've, we've pointed this out before. Mark uses that word quite often. This is not the last time he's going to use it in, in our text this morning. But here's this woman, and this is the, suddenly it's interrupted. Story one is interrupted by story number two which is a sick woman. And for 12 years, she's been sick. 12 years, she's had some kind of vaginal bleeding. We don't know all the details, but there are things we can imagine. We can imagine she has anemia, and she's had this for years. That would be headaches, that would be dizziness, that would be fatigue, uh, among other things. And, and it also meant something else. Uh, and, and by the way, what does, what does Mark refer to it here uh, in the text? That she had, um, let's see, 
if I can find the exact. Okay, the, verse 29, what does he heal her of? Affliction? Suffering? English standard says disease, which is interesting. If you look this word up, it's a word that, that means torment or whip. Did you know this is the exact same word? And it is speaking about this physical pain as well as shame that comes along with the pain that she's having. It is the exact same Greek word that is used for flogging in both the book of Acts, in both Hebrews. When you find the word flogging, you find the same word of what Jesus has said it has healed her, her of. And I think what it's showing is she's, she's been suffering physical pain. She's suffering shame. She is depleted of her finances because she's tried to use every doctor she can imagine. And has the situation gotten any better? What does it say? It's gotten worse. It's gotten worse, right? So her diagnosis really isn't much better than this dying girl. This, this woman's going to die of this if she doesn't find some kind of, of cure. But I also want to notice how she was viewed according to the law. How was she viewed? Yeah, unclean. All right, I'm going to write it in this little circle down here. She is considered unclean. So just to give you an idea, a woman who is, it's, um, it's her time of the month or uh, whatever, she is unclean for seven days according to the law. And anyone who touches a woman during that time, they are considered unclean. They're kind of banished from everyone until, um, until the end of the day. Uh, so you can get an idea. In fact, the Mishnah, I mean, actually this is Josephus, not the Mishnah. He said the temple was closed to women during their menstruation. So that's, that's a monthly thing. What's What's been happening to this woman? It's a daily thing for 12 years. This meant she was a social outcast. Yeah. Oh, listen, hold that thought. Because you're, you're, you're right on it. You're absolutely right on it. So she is unclean, not, not for just a, a monthly thing, but it's a continual flow of blood. So she's not to be... In public, she, any, if anyone were, if you know, she were sitting in this chair and I were to come and sit down in this chair, not even knowing, I became unclean. I mean, this is, this is the kind of laws uh, that were put there. So she's dealing with this. She, she can't be around people. She can't be touching people. So imagine what this did to her, not only physically, but now she's doing this really by herself. I mean, she's, imagine mentally psychologically what this is happening to her and spiritually spiritually is she going to synagogue is she going to the temple no she's not allowed she's not allowed so what is she thinking as she approaches Jesus what is her thought Do, say it yeah this is my last hope and did you find her to have this incredible faith what does she think if I can just get to Jesus, he doesn't even have to acknowledge me if I can just touch his garment. Imagine that. That's all I need is just to touch his garment. And she believes. 
She really believes. Um, so she approaches Jesus from behind. Did anybody notice that? Now this might be a coincidence, but why do you think she is approaching Jesus from behind? She's not supposed to be there. She's not supposed to be there. She's in crowds. Folks, these crowds are just thronging Jesus, right? I mean, they're just all over him. In order for her to touch Jesus' garment, she's got to touch some people. She's got to push her way through just to touch his garment. So that's her plan, but I love a literal translation of verse 29 is great. It says, and immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she knew in her body that she had been healed from her curse. Wow. Twelve years of shame, frustration, pain, it instantly comes to an end. Now, all she needs to do is sneak out. Well, let's see how well that works. Somebody read for us verses 30 through 34. So Jesus realizes there is a power, a healing power that has left him. He realizes this. And he says to his disciples, folks, this is comical. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't to them at the time, but Jesus is like, who touched me? And, and, and you know, they're like, well, Jesus, who isn't touching you? Everybody's touching you. You know, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. Well, I won't. Why is Jesus... Why is he so intent in finding this woman? He's not angry with her. We know that if, you, if you've already read the story. Why does he want to stop? She's already been healed. Why does he want to stop and find the woman? He definitely knows that power has gone out. Um, what else? There's something different about this woman than the crowds. Faith. People are being healed, folks. But he stops for this one because she's different. She has this amazing faith. So Jesus is calling her out. She, I guess she realizes she just can't, you know, hold it back anymore. And she's, a, she's scared. Why is she scared? It's possible. Mark doesn't tell us, of course. <laughs> Mark doesn't like to tell us, give us a lot of details. But we can imagine, you know, she, she knows she'd been unclean. She's not supposed to be there. Maybe she feels like she's stolen some of the, this power of Jesus rather than going to Jesus and asking him about it. Um, you know, we know that, that in the first story, Jesus calms a storm and the disciples become afraid because of this great power. Jesus casts out these demons and, and the townspeople, they're scared to death because this guy had not been able to be restrained by iron shackles, and yet here's this power. And now here's this woman, and she touches Jesus. And, and maybe suddenly she realizes, even though she has this faith, it's like this power, this power, the robe of Jesus has more power than all the doctors that I've gone to for 12 years. And, and, and he didn't even see me. I just touched his garment. Whatever the reason, she's afraid. And now she is like Jairus in the beginning. She is lying prostrate before Jesus, which is the proper response. So why does Jesus 
all attention to her, do you think? Any introverts in here? Not that you'd raise your hand anyway. Um, every introvert is going to, they're going to read this and they're, they're going to feel for this woman. She's been a social outcast for 12 years. Folks, she's not surrounded by caring friends. She's come along. And she just wants, she sneaks up behind Jesus. I really believe she sneaks in order to touch him and then she wants to leave. And we know she suffered all kind of public humiliation, and it's like, well, what is going on? Uh, why won't he let her go? And I love the way Jesus addresses her. He calls her daughter. It's this beautiful term of endearment, isn't it? Daughter. He is restoring her as a daughter of Israel. Something that she has not been enjoying the benefits of for some time and her faith has healed her she is pronounced a blessing you see that and it comes from that word comes out of the old testament or really the hebrew understanding of shalom and we think of peace we think oh maybe you know now she wants to worry about this this is a word that means wholeness it means well-being prosperity security friendship and salvation these are things this woman had none of I mean th this woman and, and some even more so than others right so she finally meets Jesus okay somebody read verse 35 to us we're back to, to story number one in the sandwich and the news isn't good is it it's no longer a, a dying child. It's a dead child. And, and just the emotions of what Jairus must have been feeling at this particular point. Um, you know, Jesus has already restored this woman who was sick for 12 years. Um, and as a father, I... I I can just imagine, try to put myself in this story, what he was feeling, grief, shock, maybe some anger, anger towards Jesus, anger towards this woman, and it seems like hope is lost. Um, those sent even said, to Jairus, listen, just leave the teacher alone. In other words, there's really nothing he can do. Now, we know the rest of the story, most of us, probably all of us in here, but, but you have to put yourself in these situations as they're happening without any thought of what's coming up. Okay? And you, you have a little bit more of the understanding and, and really the, the emotion of what's happening in this text. So let's read verse 36. It says, But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Does anyone have a different translation other than overheard? Jesus overheard these guys. 
Yours says what? Heard. Anybody else have anything different? Anybody have ignored? Um, it, it can actually be, be translated either one because there's three very specific definitions to this word. One is to overhear something not intended for one's ears. All right, wasn't for Jesus, it was for J. Iris. The other thing is to pay no attention to or to ignore. Did Jesus take any thought as to what these messengers said as far as, no, he, he, look, he's telling him, listen, just ignore them. The other thing is to refuse to listen to listen or to discount the truth of something. And does Jesus think, uh, does he look at this, this girl as being dead? It doesn't mean he doesn't believe she's dead. But, uh, you know, he's, he's overlooking this, right? So what does he tell Jairus? Don't be afraid. Just believe. Just have faith. And believe here is in the present tense. In other words, what he's telling him here is keep on believing. Okay? In other words, he came to Jesus, the first part of our sandwich, and he had this faith. Listen, I believe that if Jesus can just come and touch my daughter, she can be healed. And so what he's saying is just keep believing. Just keep having this faith. All right, so let's notice verses 37 uh, through 40. Somebody read that passage for us, please. So, Jairus, does he believe or not? Does he keep on believing or not? I believe he does. Why would I say I think he, he's keeping on believing? Yeah. He went ahead and led Jesus to the house. Is his faith going to be tested? Before he even gets to the house, he can hear him wailing. And then he walks in and he sees his, his, the lifeless body of his daughter. And, and something interesting here about this wailing is these were professional mourners. Now this is odd to us, okay? This is very odd to us. This, is, this was common, it was expected in that day and time. Um, and, and that is when someone dies, you were to hire these professional mourners and, and they would, um, they would be with the body. They would be with the body from the house all the way to the grave and they clapped their hands and they wailed these haunting laments. And like I said, if we showed up for one of those, it would just be like strange to us, but they, they were expected to do this required. So Jesus comes in, and what does, he, what does he say to the mourners? Well, you know, why are you riling everybody up? She's, she's sleeping, right? Now, they're professionals. They know someone who's sleeping from someone who's dead. And so suddenly, they're not grieving. What are they doing? They're laughing, right? They're laughing. But the, but the joke is on them. They just don't know it yet. And one of the reasons is because they're sent out. They're not going to be able to witness one of the greatest miracles of all time, which is raising a dead body from, from, its, from its grave. So only Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and only the parents are allowed to stay to witness what's about to happen which I think is also significant. So somebody read for us verses 41 and 42.
Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Mark gives us this insight into Jesus, and he doesn't just come in and say, get up. The very first thing he does is what? He takes her by the hand. Folks, she's unclean. Jesus has been touched by a woman who's unclean, this continual flow of blood. Now he's, he's touching a dead body. Uh, and, and all of that's very significant. Jesus speaks in Israel's native language, which is Aramaic, Talitha Kumi. And he quotes Jesus, Mark does, and then gives, gives its uh, translation. Now, wh why is that significant to us in the book of Mark? Who's Mark writing to? Gentiles. So Matthew doesn't do that kind of stuff. Mark does. He will say, he will give something in Aramaic, and then he will, he will translate it for those who are not familiar with the, uh, the Jewish um, language. Uh, that was sometimes spoken. So she gets out of her bed and she walks. Right? And the reaction is what? Amazement. Folks, we've seen this word before. And, and can't, you, can't you imagine of all the things, this is one of those, just this amazement. I mean, they are just, it's mind-boggling. They are absolutely, they're just about, they don't know, Wow. All right, so verse 43 is interesting. It says, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's first of all take this idea of why does he, why does he tell them to give her something to eat? Do what? She was a diabetic? <laughs> Jerry, do what? She's still weak? All right, well... You know, Jesus just healed her with the power. I, listen, here's what I think. Uh, yes. What's the first, one of the first things Jesus does when he shows himself to the apostles? He says, give me some of that fish. Is it because Jesus is so hungry? No. He's letting them know and letting us know here, she's not a spirit. She is raised from the dead. It's, it's pretty awesome when you really think about those things. So what does Jesus tell these witnesses? Don't tell anyone. And it's like, why? Okay, but do you see irony in this at all? Okay, so he heals this woman of an incurable disease. And he calls her out of the crowds. Talks to her among the crowds about her being healed in the crowds and yet here he doesn't let the crowds come in only a handful of people and those who came in he said don't tell anybody a lot of irony now I think here this is something that could not really be seen they would have to take her word for it and let's just say here that someone's raised from the dead 
That's front page news. That's front page news. And, and it's as already pointed out, it just wasn't that time. And also, Jesus does not want people having faith based on this type of resurrection. Why? It, she's going to die eventually. Not necessarily right away. Jesus heals her. He's keeping death at bay. But what he wants people to have true faith in is his own death and resurrection that releases humanity from death. So until then, we're going to keep this quiet. What Jesus is showing, one thing is that he cares about people. The other thing he's showing is he has the power to do some amazing things. You can trust Jesus, okay? You can trust Jesus. Now, Jairus is, uh, I want to get kind of a little to the point here, to the, uh, the sandwich. So Jairus is this respected leader in his town. And, um, but when it came down to his desperate situation, is he any better than a leper who comes and kneels before Jesus and pleading with Jesus? And this woman, she's no better than the leper either. Because she's unclean, and she needs to be cleansed. And when you think of lepers, you just, oh, whoa. But we see both of these, they arrive to Jesus all in the same way. Um, Jairus and the woman believe, they had this faith, that Jesus is enough for healing. He says, if Jesus can come and lay his hands on her, if I touch even his garment, she says. And in both of these situations, Jesus demonstrates his power over defilement. The woman and the house of Jairus, they are both ceremonially unclean. And the law gives these things as to what is clean and what is unclean so as not to... Um, violate God's holiness. Jesus comes to the earth and he shows us something. He shows us that God's holiness cannot be affected by the impurity of humanity. And that if we respond to God in faith, he will reverse this uncleanliness in our own lives. And not just disease, not just those who are dead, but our own sinfulness. And if we come to God and we trust in His holiness in this faith, He reverses the things that we cannot reverse, that we've been holding out for such a long time. He touches the leper and he cleanses him. He goes to a graveyard and he casts out unclean spirits out of a man. He touches a bleeding woman or a bleeding woman touches him and, he's, and she's made whole. He touches a dead little girl and she comes to life. Jesus doesn't need to be purified when he comes upon uncleanliness. Jesus overcomes the uncleanliness. Isn't that awesome? Let's just stop on that. Let's pray. 
Father, you are such a great and holy and wonderful God, and we come before you this day, and we bow before you, and we plead with you to just continue to cleanse us of all the impurities in our lives, and all of our failures, and the things that, that we have done, or even those things that have been done unto us. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he came. We thank you for this power that's been displayed. And Father, may we live in it. And may our faith continue to grow and we just keep on believing. Father, we just pray this. And as we enter into our worship this morning, we pray that all of these things would be said and done in a well-pleasing manner. And it's in your son's name that we pray, Jesus Christ, amen. <clears throat> 